0: episode 136 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson.
1: And I'm Brian Lovin. Today we caught up with Rasmus Anderson. He is currently a designer at Figma. Before that he was at Dropbox and Facebook and before that uh, at Spotify.
0: He's had a whole crazy run and we had an awesome chat. Lots of high level stuff about the philosophy of design and like where, it, where it'll go from there. The merging of design and development. It was really exciting, really fun. Uh, before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you that our t-shirt is on sale again on Cotton Bureau. You guys already brought it back, <laughs> which is crazy. Anyway, uh, we've sold over 100 of them now total, which is awesome. It's
1: cool. Uh, they're as cheap as we can make them. We're not taking any profit. We just want people to have red shirts. So they're like 22 bucks. Uh, Something like that. The Cotton Bureau link. We'll have it in the show notes. We've been tweeting it out. Uh, so if you do want a t-shirt, they're super comfortable. We have
0: them in. They're the comfiest shirts I own. Yeah,
1: we have them in gray, black. Blue, navy blue, all ladies and men's sizes. So no matter what, we're g- you're going to find one that works for you. Uh, again, link in the show notes. We hope mm-hmm. you uh, can get one if you want. We're super excited that people seem to be buying them and enjoying them. Uh, if you have bought one, you should tweet it at us.
0: Tweet us a photo. A lot of people did, and it was awesome. Super very, fun to see. Very, fun. And with that, let's get into
2: episode 136 with Rasmus Anderson. Hello, my name is Rasmus. Um, I'm a Swedish guy. Uh, I like all kinds of things that are on the screens and printed. So I uh, consider myself a designer or a maker of digital things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all
2: right. Lovely. Maker of digital things, Rasmus Anderson. What are you working on right now? I'm currently a designer at Figma and we're building a uh, interaction design tool.
1: Cool. What specifically are you working on?
2: That you can talk about, yeah. That's a tough question. Uh, we're a small team, so we're all wearing a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm. Um, we are aiming to ship our product, which is not public yet. Uh-huh. So it's closed uh, beta. It's a closed beta, yeah, correct. Yeah.
0: so a lot of people have seen it. It's just not completely open.
2: Yeah, we still have a lot of stuff to do mm-hmm. before you know we we get something out there. Um, so we're I'm primarily working on the uh, the different features or aspects of the product are are not in there right now. Uh, we're looking at something like components mm-hmm. or symbols, uh, which would let you compose things together to form something more complex. So this is a design tool, right? And mm-hmm. and, and sort of our prim- primary aim is interaction design. We're not trying to limit it to that, but that's our primary aim. And um, there's today sort of a, a separation between how designers work and think and, and, and sort of compose things and how engineers build things and ship things, right? And um, 10 years from now, there might not be two separate disciplines, right? I think it's very plausible to to, to say that, right? So you can imagine someone um, in 10 years not being a, a user interface engineer and not being a kind of a product designer, to use a popular term, an interaction designer, but sort of like someone who works on the first contact with a human part of a digital product, right? And um, if you look at how at least I've been using Photoshop and Sketch, I sort of like look to what the toolbox gives me, right? And the different uh, uh, principles that are implied by the toolbox. And and with a toolbox, I mean, you know, the different features and and sort of like UI elements and things available to me in the app. So Photoshop, for instance, have, you know, one document, right? It's not an infinite canvas. And um, Sketch is an infinite canvas. And those are two different aspects that sort of like lead you to design different things. And not trying to get too deep into the rabbit hole here, but I think one interesting exercise is that if we imagine that we have 40 people in front of us, Say they're design students, right? And now we decide to give them all the exact same task, right? It's a design task. And before giving everyone this task, we sort of like divide them in two. So we have two groups now of 20 people in each group. And we take half that group and we move them into a different room. And now they're given the exact same brief, right? Which is, you know, create a plant watering app or something like that. Um, It's down to the last detail. But group A they are told that you're supposed to build this as a website, right? Uh, for the desktop, right, specifically. And the other and the other group is told that you're supposed to build this as a native app for Windows or for Mac. You know, you let them work on this for an hour or whatever time unit, right? And then you kind of like get together and I believe that the group A who were tasked with building something for a website will have built it with, you know, the, the little hand pointer Right on top of things that are clickable, the cursor pointer. The cursor pointer. No, sorry, no. That the you know the uh, the little hand, right? Isn't that what no, it the is? Cursor thing? pointer. Is that what's called? Yeah, yeah,
1: like the CSS declaration is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah, I'm thinking in terms of sometimes CSS. Sometimes I hear a cursor. Yeah, you're, the little you're hand. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. I
2: think about like the text cursor, but yeah, you're right. Um, and so and you, they're probably gonna have a fixed width, right? As you resize the browser window, it probably is fill it with blank space on the sides, right? And then you will have. The other group are tasked for building is a native app, and I bet you they will not have the hand over clickable elements, and they will as you resize the window. The content will sort of like stretch to fit mm-hmm. the uh, the window, right? Those are probably not things we th- we think about very consciously. This is sort of a contrived example, I guess, but these are s- these are examples of what I mean with um, that the tools around you and the tools provided to you in the toolbox sort of like lead you to design something, right? They sort of influence your ideas around. Uh, what you're making and what you're creating. Okay, mm-hmm. can we get into
1: the questions that drive everyone nuts but lend themselves to, I think, what you're talking about? So if you feel like in 10 years we'll see ourselves merging more towards one discipline. Can I mention that develop and design very much mean the same thing? They're very similar. Very similar. Do you see engineers adopting design tools and adopting the way that we, in quotes, product designers think about building software? Or do you see us, product designers, Moving more towards building the thing and actually working on implementation. Well, Which I'd direction's say, giving?
2: Yeah, I'd say both. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, when in aspect of software engineering, we have all these still fantastic, great ideas and, and very creative people out there, right? But all these cool ideas locked up in little boxes in, in terms of like CVS repositories and stuff. It's basically just little folders, right? Like in locked up in different companies, right? Here and there. And then over the last 20 years, like something happened with software engineering software development which was kind of like shaped and formed by variables and, and events that i don't really know why but today we have a culture that is very inclusive very positive generally speaking right and i mean sort of like something new comes up or some questions some something and most people or the community so to speak are sort of positive about it they're like oh that's an interesting question or like i haven't thought about that or oh this, this is a cool idea. Maybe I should look into this rather than like, no, I've seen this before. Like, oh, I wrote that in COBOL in 82 and like it worked, <laughs> you know? Um, we always like to try things again. We do, yeah. And we always think that like, oh, what he did, I can do better. Or I have a, <laughs> I have an opinion about it. And I think software engineering is in a, in a pretty good state today, right? And we have things like GitHub and Bitbucket partly to think for this, like as facilitators or, mm-hmm. or, or tools, right? But this sort of like, positive sharing inclusive culture i think doesn't really exist or we're not there at all right when it comes to design and partly the reason for this is the technology right there's some other change that needs to happen or i think is happening right which is the kind of cultural and social change but cultural and the social change apart we have the technical situation of yeah i have a sketch document or a photoshop document right in this little file i you know in in you know, ninety-five or ninety-eight. I put it on a floppy disk, and I give it to you physically, right? But we don't really do that anymore. Our attention span is so much shorter; like that's just too much hassle. So, you know, we 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 have attempts like Dribble and stuff, where people put out an artifact of what they're working on, and it becomes a frictionful point just to share something and riffing off something else. is like, sure, you know, there are things out there like LayerVault, right? Trying to trying to approach this problem from a technical technical mm-hmm. uh, direction. Well, there were, yeah. Well. They were. Yeah. <laughs> um, Whatever happened to uh, the one that
0: Dropbox picked up, what's that called? I'm not sure. It's still around. It's just not accepting new clients.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what we're talking about. I mean, Pixel I should laps. know. I, Pixel apps. Pixel apps. Yes. Pixel
0: laps. Laps.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, parsing the Photoshop format and parsing the, the sketch format is not, you know, it's not trivial, but it's hard, right? You can do it. But now we're getting into details, right, of, like, specific formats. Um, I think it's still an interesting conversation about, like, what happened to the sort of, like, to the engineering culture and how positive and inclusive it is and how much people are sharing. And someone makes something, right, and puts it out there, form of code in this case, and someone else sees that and thinks, like, this is interesting, but I have a different opinion, right? And so you start getting or bordering to something that is art or personal expression, right, which is Mm -hmm. very interesting. And with the sign like anyone has and this is my experience at least so I've, I've been the designer for I'm gonna, my first paid job as a designer was in 998 so that that's a long time ago that's like over 15 years ago um, and, and I was three, nine years old <laughs> <laughs> I am an old guy you only hear my voice but I'm an old dude anyhow so with the design it is in my experience like a very it's a very visual. Um, it's a very visual form of creation, right? And it's something that everyone has an opinion on. It doesn't matter who you're working with, everyone's got to have an opinion on something because it's so visual, right? Like anyone can see... You know what you're making, and sure, you know we can have a a long conversation about like you know it's just the surface, and there's thought behind it, and process behind it, but nonetheless, people have opinions about it. And I think with computer code, like it's it's a lot more obscure, right? It's it's sort of like unfortunately something that that takes quite a quite a bit of effort to understand. Right? Many people don't know how to have an opinion about it. Although computer code is, is such a relatively obscure thing there are a lot of people opinions and and we still have this positive community right of like a lot of stuff like you know there's a remixing happening all the time. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that with design if we can find a way to sort of like uh, fast forward the change in, in, in culture and, and technology with tools we'll see a lot more of this amazing kind of remix and I have an opinion. I have an idea about this. And I'll take your thing and I change it in a way I like. And then I sort of present that to other people, including the the person I riffed off, right? Rebound?
1: Yeah. Well, can we dig into this a little bit more? Because I think it's this interesting circle where the tools as they exist today lend nothing to the ability to share work as designers. Sharing sketch files is a nightmare because there's not... Sharing within a team or sharing publicly? anything there's it seems to me at least in my experience everyone has their own way of either they're diligent about grouping or they're not they're diligent about naming layers or they're not they're <laughs> diligent about using pages in one way artboards in one way layers in one way but you're talking
0: not. you're talking about co-working not about the actual like i guess visual object which could be a screenshot
1: well let's keep going and then everyone does the visuals slightly different some people might use the line tool to draw a divider some people might use an inset uh inset box, shadow yeah inset shadow right yeah. Like there's all these little differences, and I guess you could equate that in code to small syntactical differences. But I think it's incredibly hard to share a thing in a way that's accessible and understandable by someone else. Because opinions? Whereas code is maybe yeah, maybe well, I'm mixed up here, but it seems to me that you can share code and there are frequently there's tech- process to it, right? Tabs and spaces. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There, there are a lot of opinions. opinions. There's opinions on, on, Tons of opinions on what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. yeah.
0: But you can run tests against it. And you can do code formatters and stuff like that. You can standardize it. You can't do that with design as much.
2: I see what you're saying, Brandon. It's sort of like with code, the intention and, and code that works at all in any to any measure, right? Like it's interpreted by a machine, right? Which means that there is some form of canonical representation of code, right? And so you have that. You have that higher level of personal style, which might be you curly braces start a new line, use tabs instead of spaces, or vice versa, right? You have you have um, all kinds of sort of like, you know, space between parentheses or it not. It might even be in the like weird language you choose to use. That's true, yeah. I mean, you can look at something like WebAssembly. We were talking about that before the show here, and it's a little technical perhaps, but... Exactly Who doesn't know WebAssembly? Yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> it's a linear memory model. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs>
1: cool. I know what that means. Totally. So obviously you're working on a design tool, but can you? T- what's your vision of a design tool that gets us closer to this world of, of open collaboration, the ability to remix and iterate upon each other's ideas with our own opinions and get closer to that community feeling? Yeah. I think of Stack Overflow and nothing like that exists in the design world. And will that always be the case?
2: What you were saying just a minute ago that uh, sharing things today and sort of like pointing to something. I think when when you say it's it's hard to share like a sketch file, for example, really what you mean is sort of like it's hard to point out this is a sketch file I'm talking about, right? You could put it in, in Dropbox in a shared folder and you can point to a URL that you generate for it, but then you change the name of a sketch file, the URL doesn't work anymore, right? So it's it's less that of, of sort of... Sending the bytes back and forward, or being able to look at the same thing, I think, and and more of that about the identity of something, right?
1: In a way, yeah, yeah.
2: And and that's one <laughs> and, piece of it. And having a way to retrieve something by the identity, it's I guess a little technical, maybe a little abstract, but I think to be able to um, uh, to get to this point, the uh, the answer is really simple, right? And this this point would be sort of like the ultimate design tool in some future, whether that be in ten thousand years or in two years, right? Um, is that tool that that allows us to care only about the essence of what we're trying to accomplish, right? Like in the movie Her, I'm sure a lot of you listening have seen the movie Her. I think it's a great movie in many ways. But one thing about it is that it presents a, a future where technology sort of like takes away all that friction, all that mouse clicking and all that switching of windows and stuff and sort of have this guy in this movie compose a letter to someone, right? And he cares about the the tonality and the words used in a letter and some of the other like aspects of writing a letter, right? And the computer kind of like does the rest for him, it mm-hmm. types for him. I think it chooses like a typeface for him and <laughs> and sort of like a, a style for the uh, for the letter, right? And I think that vision or whatever you want to call that is very interesting for a design tool, even starting to look today, right? Is that what are the things that we're doing repetitively that really computers could do for us, right? And I'm not talking about machine learning, specifically here i'm just talking about like what are some of the things that we find ourselves doing over and over right like you know we find ourselves like double clicking to open an app right or opening a file or browsing in finder or explorer right like all these small things that we're doing over and over and over that accumulates a lot of time right and so a great design tool is probably that that allows us to take sort of the the stamina, like the, you know, uh, the mental stamina that we have over some time, like a, a work day or something, and focus that on the creation part, right? And of course, also an, a way to say this is, this is a unit of work and this is not a unit of work, and they are sort of composed together in some way and being very – so things are not um, – how should I express myself here um, – sort of like a bad scenario would be that you don't really know what's going on, right? Like, I see this thing, but I don't know really how it fits together. What you, happens your if Your mental model this? doesn't map to it. Yeah, yeah, you're struggling to find a good mental model for it, right? Intuitively or consciously, but we were talking a little bit earlier about Figma, where, I'm, where I work. And sort of how we're looking at uh, symbols and components for composition. And there there is something to composition as in, you know, grouping that comes very natural to us as, as humans, right? Like, you go home to any person that you know, and they'll have maybe two, maybe three kind of levels of organization, right? Like, there will be maybe different rooms in their, you know, in their home if they have different rooms. We're in San Francisco here, so, you know, a lot of people have like <laughs> one, room. one room, yeah. One uh, room. And then you might have, you know, a bookshelf in a room, right? That's another level of categorization of grouping. And then you might have, maybe if you're advanced, you might have like different shelves for different things on the bookshelf, right? And that's usually how, how far people go with grouping. So playing to those natural, the th- the things that come natural to us, I think would help to build up uh, or to understand and build a good model for these things.
1: You're a technical designer.
2: I'm quite technical, yeah. That's a... It's an understatement. That's a
1: new term. <laughs> in that you understand the way software is built. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is it about the tools that we design in being closer to the code that gets output and built by an engineer? Is it about writing code directly? How how far is the spectrum that a designer, in your opinion, should go to be a good designer in terms of understanding the way it actually will be constructed in code.
0: That was a really fancy way to ask, should designers code?
1: No, no, no. It's a little different. It's how far should designers go to understand the way that the thing gets built? Not that they should code themselves, but should they understand the way... Should designers say, code to understand code? Let's say <laughs> let's say you have a, a... Just to refute, Brent, slightly a little bit more. Should designers understand the idea of how a component in a design tool gets compiled into code and then vice versa, how that
2: code might be represented in a visual state in a design tool should a furniture designer understand how you know a sofa is put together like naturally right so Mm -hmm. i think should they understand how wood is milled uh that's a good question not necessarily right so there's and and i would say with this furniture designer analogy or metaphor should a be able to produce uh, a piece of furniture right and know about the process and all the steps involved i don't think so right there's there's, we gotta focus on some things to be able to get really good at them, right? We're limited by capabilities as, you know, humans is just like a natural thing. We're usually only get one or two things, right? And we focus on that, you know, find pride in that, but um, as a designer, I think it's very important to, to be able to express as fully as possible your own ideas, right? Because if you can express your ideas that you have, you also have a, a really high fidelity form of communication with other people, right? And- to continue on this furniture uh, designer analogy here, you can imagine someone who builds a share or something like that, right? And this person might start out by sketching something that he or she thinks is a cool share, right? Um, or whatever idea sparks this the share design and then go over to like maybe more technical drawings, but still design-oriented drawings, right? Of like aesthetics and, and sort of like partial function. And then the next step is going to be, is like iteratively all the time, right? It's going to build a prototype of the share, perhaps a small miniature scale just to like get the 3D perspective. And then the next step is probably going to be to build an actual share you can sit in because it is like everything I believe that we design ultimately supposed to be used by other people, right? Or even ourselves, but. So you need to build a share and, and an actual scale model of your share design and try to sit on it. Like, does it have any back support, right? Is it like a good height? What happens when you stack the shares? Can you stack them, right? All this kind of stuff. And at that point, it starts getting blurry, right? Like when you go past that, you start talking about like a production quality share in this case, right? Is the next step to use the correct form of wood? Do you build a prototype in the actual intended final sort of wood or metal or whatever? So I think- Does the grain rub your butt wrong? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And taking this analogy now and sort of mapping back to uh, to interaction design, right? Like we have the ideation stage, just the same here, right? Like some people use pen and paper, some people use other kind of digital uh, uh, things to sort of like get your initial idea out there, right? Oh, this is uh, an app for watering plants, right? You just like draw a little square and you say like, oh, it's like on my phone, so I get a beep when it's time. And then the next sta- stage is, you know, make a little design thingy in Photoshop, Sketch, Figma, whatever, and then what, right? I think a lot of designers today they stop there and they're like, okay, now I'm gonna like work together, together with this engineer person who's a different person, of course. And like now I need to communicate all these ideas I have about like how does these things fit together, right? Like what happens when a plant is thirsty or overdue water, right? Like what what happens when the um, the foot of the plant is like old and the plant has grown, right? All these like considerations. What happens when I've watered a plant and I tap, like I've watered it, right? Is there an animation? Is there a transition? All these things are really hard to express. And I think here we've seen a lot of evolution in terms of design tools the last, I'd say five years, four years. We have things like origami, you know, coming out of Facebook, which is sort of like, you know, course, Composer, right? It's a way of, of, of expressing motion, Um and we have Framer.js, of course, and, and a whole slew of other pix Pixate, Principle,
0: right. Form, a bajillion things. Yeah, let's keep going. Quinto keep. <laughs> yeah. Envision, Marvel. And, and I, less, I, saw lower day,
2: lower I saw the other day, some, I, I can't remember the name right now, but it's pretty cool. Like, a way to take After their compositions and oh. just port them straight into iOS uh, code. It's a Norwegian Paint guy, code? I think.
1: Thank you. No, no, no. It was the guy that spoke at the Wayno Happy Hour. Um,
0: oh, Squall. Squall.
2: Yeah, I think what these things show us, though, is that like a lot of designers, like they want to express these things that our current tools can't express, right? Like, what are the transitions? What is state, right? And, you know, some people say, like, designing with data, and I think that's an overloaded term at this point, but essentially, like, what happens when this idea that we have here and this design that we have here, think about a, a static iOS or Android app, like, what happens when that meets some sort of, like, state from the outside right the user holding down her finger or not right edge cases the, you know yeah edge cases or the camera like not working or the camera is on maybe it's a camera phone or not right or rasmus doesn't have my wi-fi password <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i got his wi-fi password now so uh one dollar and i give you access <laughs> no that's okay yeah so there's definitely like a sort of like an understanding and I wouldn't call it an awakening but a word like that, right? Like, ah, interesting. Um, I've been making this Photoshop mocks and then we always like end up with something implemented that is sort of like 50% 50% of what I imagine in my mind. And we're spending all this like meaning time with my colleagues or like software engineers. And we never get it right, even though we spend like hours sitting together and like refining little animation sensor sessions. And then you start realizing that what you've been doing is just sort of like you've been drawing this share right on a piece of paper and you hand it off to someone and you then start to just word like verbaling on them, right? Oh yeah, and it should be like comfortable to sit in, and it, you know it should be stackable and stuff, right? And these things are, you know, they, they can be interpreted in many ways. Um, something that's important in in design, especially if you design some sort of product, digital or physical, you want a cohesive feeling of the product, right? You ha- you want something that feels like it's one person and not a person that's feel like it belongs. Yeah, it needs to feel like it belongs into its environment, right? If it's an Android app, it needs to feel like it's a true Android app. Uh for instance, or if it's an like a Mac app, it needs to feel like a native Mac app to some extent, but that sort of communication right that you can get if you actually like build your own prototypes like surpasses that of any any text documents or or any like you know redlining workflow things that you could kind of output right, and it's often like shorter in time and so this is a long conversation a long answer to a pretty good question I think like which is essentially that of like should designers understand the engineering part of things, right? And I think it's very crucial for designers to understand that part. Yes, this is in, is important for an engineer working in a project with a designer to understand like what goes into the design process. Yes, mm-hmm. Not exactly. all the little details. It's a
0: two-way right? street, yeah. Well, Absolutely.
2: Like one of
0: my engineers, uh, he didn't know to look for line height. Hmm. He was like, why doesn't this look the same? I'm like, well, there's a line height variable that you can change. Yeah, yeah. Like He just hadn't thought about it. It's just not something he thought about, he considered. It's just something where you, once you understand what actually goes into the design process, you definitely have another set of tools to work with.
1: I feel very lucky some of the engineers I get to work with decided to invest time in learning sketch. And I almost haven't really returned the favor because I haven't gotten into like the production environments of, of... You write some code. A Facebook world. No, not at Facebook, but they all are so eager to download the sketch tools and measure and grab colors and all that kind of stuff. And that level of empathy, I think, it certainly goes both ways and makes it feel like you actually give a shit about what the other person does for the end solution, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, everyone wants to do a good job, right? Yeah. It's not... Hopefully. Yeah, when, so, when <laughs> someone when someone's, you know, we probably a lot of us experienced this one. you know, you, you design something and you choose a specific color, you know, a specific gray or something like that. And then, you know, look at the final result and it's like a little bit off. And you're like, why is this not the correct way, right? And you're like, and you speak with the person who, um, who actually took your, you know, your design or whatever, your Photoshop thingy or sketch thingy and, and tried to interpret that and they might have color picked it from the screen and, you know, it's translated by color profiles and whatever. So like everyone are trying to do the right thing, but you have that friction and you don't have the understanding, right? You're like, how can you not just like pick, it's just right there, right? right the right. other person is like, I did that. Like, oh, oh, I see what's happening.
1: We didn't communicate well. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. understand how that worked, so.
2: I mean, I started out learning to program because I had to, pretty much, right. And it was in the mid 90s. Why did you have to? Why did I have to? Well, in 96, I think it was, or 95, something like that. Our family like got a computer, and like our ex- okay. like whole extended family, right, put all the money together and bought one of those like computers with a sound card. And it didn't have a modem, but we did go and get a modem a few weeks later. And uh, it had like 36 k or something kilobit per second connection. Yeah. And, you know, I started exploring the internet and it was pretty cool when you saw one of these things that you can click a little button or something like that, right? And it changed the contents of the screen, right? So it changed, you can add a little message or, or something like that, right? And I, I would go over to a friend's place who also had interwebs and we would go to that place and I would see that change that I made on his screen, right? And I felt like, dude, that's fucking magic. I want that. I want to make, I want to do that thing, right? But I couldn't figure it out. And so at the time I was I was into skateboarding snowboarding um and so me and three friends we had this little like sign almost was stupid name T-Mobile internal yoke um that was about extreme sports right and and sort of like in in the city we grew up in it's like a pretty small city in Sweden about 60,000 people or so but quite a few kind of people in our age and so I thought like we should make a website for this thing, right? So people can like, go and look at, you know, what the computer is on this thing. So uh, I started just like, you know, looking at other websites that were cool. And I remember that CNET.com was like one of these websites that actually like, were cool. And it's it probably sounds like like a joke to most of you, but yeah, things are different. And you know, started just like right-clicking and doing view source. And here we got a whole lot of interesting conversation about the view source and how that disappeared. But and I, you know, I hacked together something that looked like an HTML website, but it still didn't have that magic of clicking a button, right? And at this point, I haven't done any programming. HTML is not really programming; it's just like text. You copy, paste it. If it works, it works. Whatever, right? And so, um, this one day, I was in a bookstore and I saw this book on the bookshelf. And on the book, it said "CGI Bin Programming with Perl." And oh my God, my eyes lit up for this very stupid reason that. CGI bin, CGI minus character bin was what everyone put in the URL for their Perl scripts or, you know, any sort of executable script, right? And those were the things that made the magic happen, right? So I made a connection that when magic happens, the URL bar contains this thing that is on this book, so I bought this book. It turns out the Perl is like pretty much the worst language to start, start hacking on. But yeah, it's very inaccessible. Uh, like, you know, JavaScript is like the easiest thing compared to Perl. So I started out there and I made some very simple things and it became very popular, right? And, and sort of like this sort of side project and making this website online is what got me my first job as a designer uh, and, and sort of like kickstarted my career, I guess, as a designer. But so I stumbled upon programming because I had to learn it because I was very curious about it, right? I was not interested in learning how a computer worked. And I, I was not like curious about programming, right? I was curious about creating this effect or creating this like thing that could do this other thing, right? And then sort of like programming for me was a means to get there. And today we have like amazing resources to learn programming. Probably one of the best ways to get started with something that you, you can get tangible results with in the real world quotes around that is is Framer. It's CoffeeScript, which is sort of like kind of an odd language, but still it gives you a taste of White space limited JavaScript, kind of. Uh, there are opinions about CopScript, so let's not go okay. there. Otherwise, I'll, I'll get all like super angry. No, I'm not kidding. Um, no, Frame.js, I think, is a great way of like getting a taste of programming without being in sort of like a, oh, it's programming for like people who don't want to write like, actually program because it's, it's. Like real code, so to speak, that you write. But more importantly, the time you invest in something like Framer. There are other alternatives, of course. Like, like that time invested, you can actually like use and get a return on later on in the path if you like, you know, start realizing a cool Easter program. Not to bounce
1: too much back and forth between timelines, because we want to go back to that. Nowadays, at Figma, how much time would you say you spend on the technical side of things, writing, writing code? code actually building the thing versus not that they're different, but versus like designing and moving pixels and things like that.
2: Well, that actually varies a lot day to day. But uh, if we take, you know, time slice last month or so, it's, yeah, it's, (laughs) it's probably 60% design work uh, and 40% uh, coding and and software engineering. Where do you get
1: the most inspiration from? Uh, Creative inspiration for, for what's possible, what you can build? Is it? Is it from moving the pixels or is it from the latest and greatest <laughs> technology?
2: This, this is an interesting question. So many years ago, I worked at Spotify. I was part of the, the founding team at Spotify. And Spotify was the first place where I got to interact with what I would call sort of like real software engineers. And I'm sorry if I upset that one out there. I, I don't mean it in a bad way. But these guys were sort of like, you know, computer science graduates. Uh, several of them sort of like professors at uh, the the Royal Academy of Technology, uh, KTH in Stockholm and sort of like, you know, these these guys who go like, yeah, I'm taking a vacation for like a week. I'm going to like Tokyo to compete in the world, like algorithm competition, right? Where you write algorithms for 48 hours and you score and stuff like that, right? Serious stuff. And up until this point, I had done what I was talking about before. I had just like used software engineering to just, as a means to get somewhere, right? Like I want the buttons I can click on; it so something cool happens. Or like, oh, you just want this like JavaScript or something so that this animation happens. And at this point, I I started out having a lot of sort of I wouldn't call it like <laughs> intimate, as in personal intimate, but. I mean, it was a startup at the time we spent all our waking hours at work, right? So, and these were the guys that are hanging out with amazing people and they learned, they taught me so much and sparked my interest in software engineering, right? So now it's it's almost like with, with, when it comes to graphic design, I can go to the library and I can read about history or I can spend time and I can just go out and look at what other people are creating and and that's fun and interesting, I think. But there's also like Something with software engineering that there's so, there's such a depth to it, right? There's so much stuff out there. So even if you wouldn't need to sleep, like that guy is somewhere in, in East Asia, uh, you can just like sit and learn about a new thing and explore something new all the time until the end of your life, right? And I feel sometimes that with design, I have to really struggle to. Uh, to build something right i have to really struggle to come up with like a theme or an idea or like hmm let's go into my notebook and see what like ideas i had in the past what i should jam on you know you have a sunday or something and you want to build something and with software engineering there's like there's a stream or a river of never-ending ideas out there
1: what are you most excited about in that realm in, the, in that realm yeah um web assembly.
2: Well, I think WebAssembly is very interesting for many reasons. Uh,
1: What's the explain like I'm five? Because I'm essentially a five-year-old. I don't know anything
0: about it.
2: So WebAssembly allows you, it's sort of like a very, very basic language.
0: Like assembly, but for web.
2: Well, and what is assembly? Like imagine that everyone in the world would agree on not a single language that we're speaking, but sort of like a subset of a bunch of words. A primitive That, like, you know, there's like mother and father and hello and goodbye and a bunch of these like very basic primitive words that you need, right? Imagine you're going to China or something and you don't know any of the local languages, right? You might learn and you're going on your own, say, right? You might learn some of the basic words that you absolutely need to get past, right? And to, you know, where's the bathroom and can I have a glass of water and like hello and goodbye and thank you, right? Now imagine that. All the countries in the world would agree on a very, very small vocabulary of these words and standardize them as one sort of like very simple language. And this is what just assembly is in general, that it's 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 a pretty old concept actually. Um, but WebAssembly takes this this concept to the web browser and allows us to use any sort of programming language that we want, right? And we were talking about this earlier in the show that some people have different different personal opinions, right? Of like, should you use space or, or Tabs or curly braces here and there? And, and and then, Bryn, you pointed out that some people even like have preferences about languages. The awesome guys who build Frame.js, like they have a preference about CoffeeScript, right? So they choose that language. And some other people have a preference JavaScript or, or Figma. A lot of Figma is built in C++. It's a very different language. And sort of, WebAssembly, I guess, allows us to speak like you could speak Cantonese and I can speak, uh, you know, Russian, right? And you could speak like Finnish, but we could all use this one vocabulary, right? This small vocabulary we're talking about and understand the very like important basic words, right? And be able to communicate.
0: Like a parent language? Like we have romantic languages that all kind of have the same base words and you can translate quickly?
2: So that's something that is descendant, right? But this is more of building blocks for something more, something a higher level. Anyhow, what is exciting about it? This, this is just like details about what it is, right? But what does it actually mean for us? I think it means for us that we'll be able to build experiences running in web browsers that have the, um, the capabilities and the performance foremost of those things that we can see as native applications, right? We can see Android app written in Java or an iOS app in Objective-C or Swift. That sort of fidelity and performance we'll be able to see in a web browser, right? Now, recently, Google Google had their I.O. conference and they showed something that, you know, me and a, a bunch of um, my peers have been talking for a long time about, uh, the, tangentially, um, that of the blurring between webs and apps. Right? If you have an Android phone or an iOS phone, you can go into the search field and you can search for something like, you know, funny cat or something. And like one of the search results would be like, there's an app here. It's called funny cats. But today you have to click a button next to it that's just like view and it opens a fucking app store. And you have to install it and punch in a password and all the crap and wait for it to download. And why is that right? Like an app and a website are really just the same thing, right? They all end up running the actual same little codes, like very far down on the computer, right? It's only on the surface they're different. So I think WebAssembly like, will probably play a much bigger role than what we think right now. And, and so, so that's <laughs> that's exciting. We'll be able to build awesome experiences We'll be able, probably able to uh to publish them. Websites are just apps that are native to a different server. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sort of shoved the WebAssembly
1: answer onto you. Is there anything else you're super excited about that's happening right now in the
2: technology world? Well, something that is, is in the intersecting realm of technology and, and what we've been talking about design, right, is that of... You know, the one at 1x and at 2x, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, yeah, this good old conversation. Please teach us. Can we, okay, can
0: we, I'll say where we design right now. Sure. Brian? 1x. 1x.
2: 2x.
1: Whoa! Shut up. Oh, it should be.
2: Wait, really? No, I do both, yeah. So, again, like, the tool I'm working on, Figma, like, needs to work on, you know, a lot of different resolutions. True. And this is where it gets interesting, right? That, like, what is the resolution? Um. So ultimately, the resolution is sort of like how many pixels you have on your physical display connected to your computer. Um, And sort of like a Figma window could stretch over multiple displays. And like, you know, what do you pick? And what is that 2x, right? And going back a little bit in history and seeing like where 2x started, it was like when Apple introduced the iPhone 4. Um, And uh, I should have, you know, found this out, but I don't, so, you know, you you guys can probably correct me on this, but I think it was in 2012. Um, let's say it was 2012, right? And so it sounds the, right. Yeah, it's uh, so, somewhere down there. And at the point they had this one phone, you know, the um, uh, the iPhone 3S, and it had a certain resolution. And they now I don't know. This is complete speculation, right? But assuming that Apple made a decision that we want a high-resolution display, right? And what is the cheapest way to get there? And we have some constraints here, which is that we have all these cool apps out there, right? And they need to, like, work on this new phone that we're making. So let's make the actual physical display, right? We're not talking about points or virtual pixels here, but, like, the actual physical display exactly twice as large, right? Twice as many pixels. And that meant that they had to introduce a concept to engineers and to designers to allow you to sort of like design for this new higher uh, high resolution display, right? And I'm assuming that the reason they did this was scaling by even multiples, right? Like two by four, scaling down by 50% and so on. It's a very cheap operation and, create, and it yields pretty good results, right? Just technically speaking. You know, Apple introduced this idea that like, oh, here's an e- easy way of thinking about it. iPhone 3, that's 1x, right? iPhone iPhone 4, that's 2x, it's twice the amount of pixels, right? So you add a scaling factor to a previous code that is 2x, right? Yep. Or the inverse, depending on which direction you go. Um, and it made sense. And then, you know, boom, along came more phones, you know, the iPhone 4S, the iPhone 5, a whole slew of Android devices. TV DPI, which is 1.33x. Well, here's the interesting thing, right? Like, what is 1x? Today, what is 1x? Like in 2012 or whatever it was, 1x was well-defined, which means that 2x meant something.
0: 1x generally means one device pixel per pixel of code.
2: Right? And what is one device pixel?
0: The actual physical pixels of an LCD display,
2: usually LCD. But here's the thing, right? That we have, I have this little spreadsheet and I'm happy to, I don't know if we can share this spreadsheet like in the- Show notes. Yeah, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll share the spreadsheet. You can, you can find the link right here. Um, they just list a couple of devices under different uh, actual resolutions, right? And now at 1x means whatever you want it to mean, right? You just pick one of these devices, right? You pick some resolution, 144 dpi or ppi. That's 1x, right? And now you say like 288, that's 2x, right?
0: Which 288 would normally be considered like 4x? Well, at, if, it, if it's a po- under regular point pixel scale, which is 72 dpi.
2: I think the point I'm getting to is that if we are to design things for humans, right, we are probably better off caring about the physical dimensions of the final artifact, right? Like the final thing painted on the screen, right? And so if you take just five different devices, five different hardware resolutions on their displays, right? You take like an Android device from five years ago and you take like one of the new iOS devices and and a couple of other things, right? You find yourself with like a pretty wide spectrum of hardware resolutions, right? And so now imagine a person looking at these displays, right? Like that person is going to have, you know, the same approximately the same sized hands and the same sized face and eyes and vision and all that stuff as, as everyone else, Right. And, you know, the human body evolves very slowly compared to our technology. So it would be fair to say that you want the button to actually be, you know, 11 millimeters tall, right? Because that'll match a finger pretty well on the screen. You don't want to say that, like, if it's this device, then draw it at, you know, uh, 12 screen points. But if it's that device, then draw it at 14 screen points because 1x differs, right? So I think today, like, we can make assumptions, uh, about what 1x means, you know, especially if you're designing for a specific platform like iOS, for instance, is a very like, very narrow spectrum of resolutions. You can probably get away with the 1x and 2x kind of situation, right? But when you get to the web and when you get to Android and a bunch of other sort of like platforms, if you will, like it doesn't make sense anymore. And I wonder, would it make sense for us to, to express kind of distance in millimeters or in inches or whatever we want, right? Like sort of like tell the computer, this button, I want it to be, you know, 80 by 11 millimeters, right?
0: Because it knows how many pixels per inch or whatever.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, drawing at 11 millimeters is trivial. It's just, it's multiplication. It's, it's, It's very cheap and very simple to do. But today we are sort of like in this, I believe, sort of shift, right? Where we have all these different hardware resolutions. And at one point it's going to be, on the same level of abstraction or the same level of sort of like weirdness as, um, as memory was in computers, right? Like we used to care about how much memory we had in a computer, the working memory, so that, you know, when you put in your program floppy, it was before we had hard drives, like you could load the program into a computer's memory, right? And so as a user and an owner of a computer, you had to care about that shit, right? And today I think it's the same with hard drives, right? you buy a PC, a Mac, whatever, like one of those things You that, is not, that you don't put in your pocket, you have to sort of like care about how much hard drive space do, uh, you put in that computer, right? So that's like, oh, do I need to edit video? Mm, maybe I should have a terabyte or two or whatever. Oh, okay, I'm not only going to surf on this, maybe 128 gigabytes is enough. And we're already, I think, like close to that. You go on and you buy some PC from Best Buy or whatever, sort of like, you know, computer, big computer company, and it will just have enough you know, hard drive space and enough memory, right? And most people don't think about the clock frequency of the CPU or the memory and stuff. And so at some what? point... They don't? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so at some point, we'll stop thinking about sort of the, the resolution of the screens as well, right? And as designers, I think there's a couple of small things stopping us from actually going out and doing this right now. And I think the biggest one is that of hinting, right?
0: That This is going to be my next point. It's like, okay, so... To, to avoid the whole hinting conversation, you basically have to have a high enough resolution display, something above 300 or 350 pixels uh, per inch to actually get to the point where you don't have to worry about that.
2: I'd say that the problem is a little bit more complicated. You could have even higher resolution, right? You can have hinting problems. Like, let's say that as a designer, you want to draw a very fine hairline, right? And you might want to draw that at one kind of like raster, right? One hardware pixel. And now let's imagine like the shape of an A, like the uh, the uh, uppercase A, right? So, sort of you know, a triangle and has a, a line in the center, right? Horizontal line in the center. And now let's say it's a vector shape and just to highlight, you know, the problem that the computer has here. So, so there's a vector shape and now we load this in to the computer and imagine that we're the computer machine here. Um, and we get a bounding box and we can make sure because we know the bounding box, right? Let's say it's like 100 by 100 uh, units, doesn't matter. We can make sure that the top and the bottom and the sides are sharp, but anywhere in between, we can't make any decisions, right? Because we don't have enough information. We don't know the intent of the designer, right? So didos are just a shit show. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this horizontal line, we could end up making a decision that like when we get something that we can't align perfectly by our hardware pixels, we move it up, right? But then we are, comp- we are making a decision that we compromise on the geometry, right? Or we can make a decision. We're moving it down. This is essentially what Microsoft ClearType does in comparison to to Apple's font renderer, right? Like Apple's font renderer is trying to kind of sort of maintain the geometric kind of precision. It shades as a percent of a pixel, right? Well, it, it tries to make it look... Yeah, well, we can get it. It's a long conversation, but in clear type, tries to just simply make it sharp and compromises on sort of like geometric precision, right? Yeah. Okay. And what we would need in tools to make this a reality to, to say that this button should be 80 by 11 millimeters and actually make it sharp and fine and have control over how fine that hairline is in this imaginary A, right? We need a way to tell the computer what our intent is for this line in A. I'm sure some of you are familiar with uh, typeface design and font design and, and this is a big part of, of typeface design, right? Like you need to make sure that, you know, the um, uh, the straight line in an A or in a lowercase E or something like that is sharp with different resolutions. So font formats have uh, hinting information in them that tells the computer like, or the Rasterizer it's called, that actually creates the pixels on the screen, how it should go about aligning these things, right? To make them sharp. So in this case, when I can't align, the horizontal line in the A, up or down, right? Like, what should I do? Should I just draw two half pixels? So if imagine that you drew actually two pixels and you just draw them at 50% opacity, or, which is what most renders would do, or would I, you know, would I use sort of a ceiling sort of math thing, right? Would I just, like, step up one pixel and draw it up there, or do I step down? And then the designer could say, well, step down, you know? And you can say that if this is a typeface, you could say that for... The central horizontal thing in E as well, and then you know that when an A and an E is drawn the same on the same display, they're both going to be in line, right? They might be shifted down by by a little, just a little nudge, right? But at least they will be. They're proportionally aligned. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're levelled by each other. So now tie this back to the one X, two X.
2: So the one X and two X today, like so, one X we said it doesn't really mean anything anymore, right? It sort of like means whatever you want it to mean. You could say 1x is like the hardware resolution of an iPhone 3, right? And then you can base all the other things at 175x or something like that on top of that. Or at 2.31x or something like that, right? But it gets very complicated. We'll, We'll end up in a world, and I know several people today who like, you work on an icon or you work on some graphical element that goes into something that's shown on a lot of different devices. For instance, Facebook. Uh, where you have to output many different artifacts, right? Like many different PNGs for all the different resolution, hardware resolutions that you care about, meaning that the ones that you think are the most impactful, right? And then you will be like, oh, for all the other ones, right? We'll use this like formula to pick like a PNG, right? A pre-rasterized version of my original design. And you'll show that and it'll scale a little bit and it gets resampled and it'll look okay,
0: yeah, the example I think of all the time when I'm talking about like how much hinting matters is the iPhone six plus, where it's like 414 points per inch, but it actually like it's scaling down from 3x to like 2.87x or something ridiculous like that. So it's already fucking up all of your pixel perfect designs. So it doesn't really matter. But it's not immediately visible anyway. If you really dig in, if you use like a loop or something, you can you can see it. But it's really hard to see with the naked eye.
1: Yeah, can. Can the
0: argument also be that given enough time every display will eventually be
1: pixelless a high, a high enough resolution that it doesn't matter
2: right absolutely yeah
1: well like the concept of in which case in airline right? it, it doesn't matter because it's you could have a hairline that's twenty pixels because the density is so high nobody knows right it uh, wouldn't matter
2: definitely be there I mean yeah we'll get there in a thousand years right <laughs> let's say that we still have displays uh, in a thousand years. Ten years? Why not? Yeah, ten years. Oh, something you know, like really far into the future. So there's sure. no doubt about sure, it. Right? Sure, sure, like, sure, sure. Of course, we want to have these like yeah, like Apple Cinema Display. It's got a, a got a couple of years it's, on its next it's now. It's all though. gradients and everything is a stop. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's gonna be beautiful.
2: No, I agree. Yeah, it makes sense. And subpixel anti-aliasing is like you know a strategy for essentially like exploiting the fact that. You know, an LCD pixel is actually four tiny little pixels, right? Right. Like normally, two green ones, one red and one blue one, and sort of like you use that knowledge of the actual hardware, how they are laid out. To yeah, there's you can go Google this, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to read about. You create something that that. Uh, uh, that causes you to see or experience something sharper mm-hmm. than it is possible to be, right? So it's not actually like subpixel anti alias. Well, it's not really subpixels, right? Like they don't exist. You can't get smaller than a pixel. But that, that's something that I think now makes sense to to disable, or you can do that in those instance, You can do that system wide range, system preferences, high resolution display. It makes everything a little faster. Subpixel anti aliasing is just like a, an extra step of processing when rendering something. And uh, yeah, maybe at one point, we don't even need anti-aliasing anymore.
1: Yeah, everything just works somehow. Everything
2: is perfect. A lot of video games, uh, you know, approached anti-aliasing in the same way, right? instead of attempting correct, like actual anti-aliasing, right, you just do... Well, anti-aliasing does actually work like this, but you sort of like draw the scene several times. So you draw the scene at like four times the resolution, right? And you sort of like sample it down. There are many different ways of achieving it. So... It's essentially the same if we have a resolution, like a display, right, that has eight times uh, the pixels than, you know, your average display today, that is essentially drawing something at eight times anti-aliasing, right?
1: How do these factors and these arguments about 1x, 2x, pixels, all this kind of stuff, how did those topics influence the way that you approach building Figma? Because now you're talking about building the tool that designers are going to use to make those decisions, right?
2: So we spoke about hinting, that's one s- sort of obstacle. Like there's, there's really no way to express that. Another another obstacle and, and Figma, who's delivered over the web primarily, needs to be small in file size as well. There's no good interchange format for vector shapes. We actually do use SVG for, for most our uh, interface elements. And we sort of like, yeah, as we sat here a few minutes ago, maybe you don't need to care about hinting. And I think when you need to care about hinting, it's probably where you have an idea about like your personal expression or you, you. I know this touches subject for some people, but when you really want to have control over how the final looks are, sort of like boarding to art, right? Like I have an idea of how this should look and I'm not going to change that, right? Then you have the utilitarian camp of like, this is what I'm going to provide and it's just going to be as functional as possible. It does the thing. All right. Yeah. Good. So Chip the approach it. the approach we're taking is sort of like, let's just do whatever makes most sense and be as pragmatic as possible right now. So we're using SVG, and if you have a high resolution display, it will render, you know, a high resolution, it will rasterize in a high resolution. If you have a low resolution display, it will rasterize at a lower resolution, right? And sort of and at some points, like, you know, we've had some issues with we draw an icon that has three lines in it, horizontal lines, and for instance, Safari, when you use uh, the background image center, it centers it on, uh, let's see, what is it, virtual points, and it doesn't care about, like, the physical points, if I remember correctly. So you actually get, yeah, and, and Chrome is clever about that, so it's sort of, like, uh, centers And, it and this is why you support Chrome specifically. <laughs> <laughs> know but <laughs> it is an interesting detail so neither of them do, really do the right thing though it's, there's no right or wrong here getting with hinting, but that's the approach we're taking right now and when it comes to typography right that's a whole different conversation right like you know we use points sometimes which is in you know, a web browser defined as like one point to sort this like 72 you know dpi but then you have scaling factors and it's it's just a mess so we sort of like we have 11 pixels as interpreted by css typeface right and if that's too small maybe just like scale your resolution in a really crazy way or you can assume it because it's in a web browser
1: you keep saying uh designers bordering on self expression and artists artistry yeah would you call yourself an artist
2: no i think that would be way too pretentious of me (laughs) I don't think the sort of okay. design that I that I do, like part of it, and part of the software engineering that I do as a hobby is like it's self-expression. Definitely, it's like sort of hobby style. Like I have an opinion, and here it is. And like, what do you think? Right? Rasmus and, artisan. <laughs> I'm a pixel artisan. <laughs> I wear leather things, and I drink coffee out of uh-huh. handmade yards. Uh huh. That is not great. Handmade um, yards. Yeah. It's <laughs> Medieval things. You know, looked like a horn. So. <laughs> We have this conversation between, like, in lack of a better term, like architect on one side of the spectrum, right? and then you have an artist on the other side of the spectrum, and sort of the artist is like, "Here's my view, here's my thing, take it or leave it, right? Like, if you want it, take it or experience. If you don't like it, move along, right? Go to the next thing." And um, then over the architect side, using that again as sort of like a label for something, you have. What we're building is is solving a purely utilitarian need, right? And self-expression comes very, very far down to the list, if if at all, on the list, right, of priorities. Um, and I think the design that uh, we're usually talking about, and what you guys talk about in the show, is like mostly in in sort of like in the middle of this, and 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 often bordering like toward the art part of the spectrum, right, the extreme of the spectrum. You know, someone asks, like, oh, can there be, like, design without art? Could there be art without design? Like, you know, it's not a question that has an answer. In my opinion, art is, like, an expression of an idea or something that is uh, that is subjective. It's an expression of self at some level. At some level, yeah. Or anything you have, right, that, that might not be a, based purely on rational facts or logic or anything like that, right? And that's very important. It's, like, a big part of what it makes us human, right? And we... <laughs> We should never ignore that. Um, but then there are different kinds of design. There's this sort of design that is just here to solve a problem, right? And mm-hmm. imagine, I saw someone made this drawing and I should remember his name, but I can't. was not a presentation somewhere. Um, and he explained like, so sort of product design and, and the idea. And now, you're going to have to imagine this. So, there's this little guy, a little stick figure on the, on, the, on the side, right? Of this empty canvas. And now, imagine that he or she is sort of like looking across the other side of the canvas and there's some water in the center, right? And this person can't get over the water. And on the other side of the canvas, there's a red apple and tasty red apple, right? So at this point we have sort of the problem or the need or the want or whatever. This person wants the apple, right? But there's water in between, can't get there. And now a utilitarian product that does a really good job puts a bridge over that water and the person walks over the bridge has the apple. Failure mode here for a purely utilitarian product would be to build a bridge that is all super elaborate. Maybe doesn't look like a bridge, even so, it takes a while for a person to realize that it's a bridge, and maybe it's it's like you know twisty, crazy bridge, right? There's like my bridge and an ex, ex, you know an experience, and this person is just out for the apple, right? It's like a fucking bridge, right? And, and this person comes over and passes through this like maze of a bridge, gets the apple, and like, oh, that's the worst fucking bridge, right? But this is all. I think this is all with the uh, this position that the person is just out after the Apple. But there's a different kind of product, right? Which is that of there is no Apple. There is only this elaborate bridge. And this person is like, huh, that's an interesting contraption, right? And experiences the bridge. And I think most video games are the bridge without the Apple, right? Hmm. Or if you will, the bridge is yeah. the Apple. Yeah, I see it. And then we have something in between. The bridge is the Apple? <laughs> yeah, heads exploded in here, actually. Um, you know, these are two extremes and a lot of design that we do fits somewhere in between, right? Like- It's an Apple-esque bridge. <laughs> yeah. You know, I go install like, I don't know, uh, some calendar app or whatever it might be, right? Like I use the Google Calendar app on my iPhone, I think it's great. And in that scenario, I go for the first thing. I want a bridge that is as straight as possible. Obviously a bridge, give me the fucking Apple, right? But then you have things like, like games, or actually, we used that example. You have things like uh, chat applications or camera editors, right? Like photo editors. Again, you know, example for for Android or iOS. And, and suddenly, you have something that needs to both provide a, a path to the Apple, right? Of, of like editing a photo, it changes the saturation or lightness or whatever. But it also needs to have some sort of personality and expression. And it's like, This is from the author's perspective, right? This is what I believe is a good way of developing photos on your phone, right? And here's someone else who does like, no, I think this is the way to do it. And sort of like, there are a bunch of photo editing apps out on the different app stores, right? And they're all like, there are a bunch of them, they're very equal in terms of popularity and sales and everything, right? And that sort of, I think, indicates that the middle spectrum is very much like a, a legit thing, right? Where you have a bridge that is an experience, but it provides utility in form of getting to that apple.
0: So is this user experience versus user interface?
2: <laughs> Have you guys
0: seen Sebastian DeWitt's uh yeah. like his tweet? <laughs> yeah. He keeps labeling random photos as user experience and user interface. Yeah, One yeah. is like a watermelon with like a swimming cap and the other is a basketball in a glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you fall on the spectrum? I I,
2: I know where I fall. Um, He's a carpenter. <laughs> He's building the house. <laughs> well, I, I definitely fall closer toward the straight bridge just leads to the Apple. I think it's it's just what makes me personally like more excited. Like can I build a really fe- effective bridge and can I, can I build it in such a way that there is some elegance to it? And I think this is where like, I find a lot of satisfaction in art. And this is a different kind of art form, right? Like the satisfaction in, in like quality and the satisfaction in knowing that something runs really well. Like a watchmaker, finds a great satisfaction in the mechanics of the watch, right? That is hidden away in the watch, right? And a lot of people find satisfaction in, like, owning a watch like that, right? Or being, you know, a motorcycle engine, or even for some people are into guns, right? Like, there's a lot of this sort of satisfaction and appreciation and artistry, I would say, about sort of like the execution or something or the inner work. The craftsmanship. The craftsmanship, if you will, yeah. Or the elegance of a solution, right? If it comes to computer code, it could be the elegance of an algorithm or the simplicity, simplicity and the elegance and the simplicity by creating something very, like, you know, expressive, right? Yeah. We're actually over time. Sweet. Anything you want to plug before you go? No, you guys got to get excited. Figma. It's got to be Awesome. No, uh, I've never been excited for Figma not once
1: if people listening wanted to try Figma how could they get into the closed beta uh,
2: just go on our website and sign up yep. if you're really eager to try it out you can drop a line to Bryn in uh, the Spec.fm Slack channel there's also a Facebook group you just search for Figma on Facebook there's sort of a user group You can. you have to request just to get access but you know it's no problem. Rasmus gave me access in less than a second. I requested access and I immediately had a push notification. I was, it was amazing. sitting there for hours just <laughs> waiting. With waiting for Bryn. When is he going to
0: request
1: access? <laughs> awesome. <coughs> thanks for um, coming. That
2: was super fun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Rasmus. Thank you for listening.
0: That was episode 136. Thank you for listening and thanks to Rasmus for coming and hanging out with us for an hour.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, let us know your thoughts on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Hit us up on our Slack team. That's at spec.fm slash Slack. Uh, Almost 5,000 people are in there chatting about podcasts and designs and tools and resources and just generally having a good time. It's pretty crazy in there. Hope you'll join us again. That's at spec.fm slash Slack. And finally, grab our t-shirt.
0: They're really cool. CottonBureau.com. It's the one that says design details on the front.
1: We'll have the link in the show notes. Again, uh, we're not making any money off of it. All the margin is going to Cotton Bureau. We made it as cheap as we could. Uh, So it's like 22 bucks for a t-shirt, all ladies and men's sizes, black, navy, blue, gray, super comfortable shirt. And we hope you enjoy it. If you grab one, let us know, hit us up on Twitter, tweet us a photo. It's been so fun seeing everyone that's grabbed one so far. Again, link in the show notes. Buy a t-shirt.
0: Thanks for listening. See you on Wednesday with Christophe Tozier.
2: I sort of lost my track here. My my train of thought left the station. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never heard that <laughs> expression
0: before. My really, train of thought yeah. left the station. Yeah, that's... I've heard. I lost my train of thought. I've never heard my train of thought left the station. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Different. I'm just standing there. I was like, I was gonna be on. I the like train. the
1: Swedish version better. But you were talking about. Um, oh fuck!
2: <laughs> yeah, see, we're all. I was. No one's. You weren't paying attention. To I was. <laughs> <laughs> Your first
1: paid gig was in nineteen ninety eight. Was in nineteen ninety eight.
2: You'll setting some context there. Let's see.